hey, renewal. I'm going to try not to break down and cry. Uh, and they also got me teaching on a sad theme this morning, too. So it's like a double whammy. Um, but uh, if you've been, uh, <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, you know, it, it, we were in this season of Lent, you know, uh, a few of us uh, uh, were at an Ash Wednesday service a few weeks ago, and we kicked off the season of Lent, and that service was a very heavy service, because what we're doing in Lent, if you don't know, maybe if you grew up in a more formal liturgical background, you know that the season of Lent, uh, it really is to be this journey to Good Friday and then to Easter, and what we do in the season of Lent is we're trying to get a snapshot of the whole story of God, a snapshot of the whole um, gospel, how the gospel works. Uh, oftentimes we use the word gospel, but we don't realize how thick and how deep and how many layers there are to the way the story of God plays out. And so Ash Wednesday uh, kicked off this, this understanding that we were mortal, like we came from dust and we're going back into the ground. And that's to cultivate in us a sense of that sin has wrecked our world. It has wrecked everything about us. There's nothing, there's not a way you think. There's not a way you talk. There's nothing, the, the way you eat, none of your organs and none of your systems operate exactly as they were intended. No matter how hard you try, because it's broken. And, and, and that's just a scientific fact. Every motivation, even your best motivations, have some broken sin mingled in them. And that's the nature of how sin came into the world and infected every one of us. And so at Ash Wednesday, we recognize our mortality. We see our brokenness. We cultivate a heart of repentance. But what we're doing is we're trying to lean our focus toward our hope, which is the cross of Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done and what he did do 2,000 years ago when he entered into human history and he lived on planet earth for 30 some years and then he was brutally, unfairly put on a cross for the sins of the world and then he rose again. And so we're in the middle of that journey. We're not at the end of the journey. We're not at Good Friday, but we're in the middle of the journey, which means we're in a season of trying to pull back the curtain on our brokenness. And so last week, Pastor Ulysses uh, talked about the prayer of the groaning in our brokenness, how the Holy Spirit has come to us and in our brokenness has, is cultivating in our heart to, to groan in it, to, to long for God to work. And we don't even have words sometimes to express what we're going through and what we're, where we're at. And it was a beautiful sermon uh, on Romans uh, chapter eight. And this week we're gonna talk about grief, pain, in suffering and the beauty that's in brokenness from that. About four years ago, um, when I was pastoring in Arkansas and a church uh, very similar to the size of Renewal and, uh, and I had a, a really good friend, his name was Monty Jones and uh, he was an awesome friend. It would have been like, I don't know how to explain it, but, but he would have been a guy like, I mean, I'm about to make this guy an elder you know, like he's a beauty, had a beautiful family and two beautiful kids. And um, he was just, a, he was an amazing dude. And, and I would go to his house weekly and I would sit on the floor at his house and, and uh, we would hang out and we would talk till late. His wife would be like, I'm going to bed. And we'd keep talking about life and ministry and the church and where we were going and what we were doing and um, buildings we were gonna build and ministries we were gonna do and how we were gonna help the homeless and juveniles. And, and we were just, 
we were obsessed with like what God might do uh, as we partnered together and as we did ministry uh, together. And uh, four years ago, I was, um, I was at the gym and I was working out and, and I got a text message um, from another friend in the church and it said, you need to call me right now. And I walked out of the gym and I pulled that phone up and he said, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but Monty just died in his sleep. He was 32 years old. He was in great health. The night before we'd been at a birthday party and I'd been running around the room with Monty on my shoulders. You imagine he was six foot tall and he weighed about 200 pounds and I'm five foot three and also weigh, I won't say how much I weigh. <laughs> Not at 200 pounds, I don't think. But I'm a kind of a short, bullish looking guy and Monty was a tall kind of um, muscular but athletic guy, not overweight at all. And I'd put him up on my shoulders the night before. We'd run around the room while his kids screamed and yelled at us, almost toppling over uh, all the time. And uh, it was just inconceivable to me that we would leave that birthday party and I would get that call the next morning. And I remember being so discombobulated that I, I got in my car. I was actually dripping in sweat. Um, and I remember getting in my car and, and started to drive to his home where I had been hundreds of times. And I kept missing turns. Like I, like I couldn't think straight. I almost hit like another car. I turned against traffic one time and I was just, just totally discombobulated. Couldn't think straight. One, trying to imagine what I was about to walk into when I got to the home to see his wife and to see those kids. and. Um, and then I thought of like another good friend of ours. I thought I need to let him know. And I called him and I couldn't hardly get the words out. And he was at an airport trying to fly back. And we started crying on the phone. And then I got off and I kept missing turns. And finally I got to his house and he was coming out. They were pulling him out on the stretcher and his little kids, uh, two little kids were in the yard and a, a friend had gotten there and was watching them. And his wife was sitting on the floor of the living room where he'd sat many times. And and for the, one of the first times in my life, I saw and experienced grief. And not the kind of grief of, you know, I missed out on something fun this week or uh, maybe a, a friendship that I used to be close with isn't so close anymore. Although those are all real, those are all things we grieve. Those are all real losses. Friendships, brokenness in our family, things that we cared about and wanted, jobs that we lost, those can all be things that cause grief in us. But for the first time in my life, I experienced at a really deep level what happens when someone you love and something you deeply value is gone. And, and here's uh, not the best thing you're gonna hear this morning, but it's a true thing you're gonna hear this morning. Uh, some of you have experienced that. Some people in the room have experienced some people you deeply love and they're not part of your story anymore. They're not in your life. You don't get to see them or talk to them. Uh, and that's just been a part of your journey. And some of you, all of you will some point experience that. It, it is a part of the journey as humans that we will walk in because we're in this broken world. And so the question we come to then is, okay, what is God doing in that? Like, even as I look back on that moment now, I look at it and I think, okay, God, what were you doing? What was going on there? 
And as the years have gone by and as God has continued to work in my heart, I've, I've, it's kind of been dialed in little by little to see more beauty in the brokenness. The Bible makes a lot of claims about suffering and grief, but there's two incredibly audacious claims that I think the Bible makes that I wanna talk about uh, this morning. Two audacious claims that the Bible makes about our suffering and our grief. The first one is in 2 Corinthians 12, verse nine. I'm gonna read this. Before I read this phrase, it's coming up, and you get, maybe you see it on the screen already. Uh, Paul is gonna basically lay out for 20 verses how his life has been painful. He's been stoned. He's been abandoned by friends. He's been left for dead multiple times. He's been whipped. He's been persecuted by people who don't love God, and he's been persecuted by people who say they do love God. At every turn, Paul's life has been a mess. Some scholars say that Paul has so been beat up that his face would have been disfigured and he probably couldn't even see very well. There's some thought that even when he wrote, he had to write in these big letters because his eyesight, his eyes were not good because he'd been punched or rocks had been thrown at his head so many times. Um, so this is a guy who knew suffering. And on top of all of that, the Lord uh, apparently told Paul, hey, Paul, I need you to know weakness even more than you know weakness. And so I'm gonna give you a thorn in your flesh. We have no idea what it was, but it was something that the Lord allowed an enemy of Satan, right? They allowed Satan to give him and somehow it affected him. Maybe it was a painful thing in his body. Maybe it was a debilitating injury, Maybe it was some pain that no matter what he did, it wasn't gonna go away. I know friends that struggle in that kind of thing. Maybe it was a certain kind of loneliness. I had a significant long season of singleness and I often was like, man, that's a thorn in my flesh. It's miserable, it's terrible. Or maybe it was just the loss, like he says in Philippians, of all things. All things valuable to him, lost for the sake of Christ. Maybe, who knows what it was. Maybe it was a constant battle in his flesh and against temptation, maybe. He had a thorn in the flesh and he grappled with it and he battled with it and he fought against it. And the Lord said to him again and again and again this. And then check out what he said here, verse nine. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon him, me. Here's the first audacious thing I think the Bible says. Weakness, I think we could put suffering, grief, loss, we can load all of that into weakness. And here's, I think, the crazy thing that the Bible says. God intends that you leverage and lead from your weakness. Or we could say it like this, God intends that the brokenness, pain, grief, and suffering, all of it that you would go through will be leveraged and you will serve others from it. That's audacious. That's a crazy thought that your weakness isn't the thing that holds you back. The thing you've gone through isn't the thing that will stop you from accomplishing God's purpose. The, the stuff that you've battled with aren't the things that are gonna slow you down. But in the economy of God, your brokenness is a thing God wants to use to leverage you for the sake of others. That you would lead out of it. In fact, God seems to be saying to Paul, um, I'm not gonna let you serve others without walking with a limp. 
I'm gonna make sure that every significant thing you do to serve and to love others comes out of weakness because in your weakness, my power is made perfect. That in your brokenness, I'm gonna be put on display and be seen as beautiful. I love that song, by the way. You're beautiful. Thank you, David, Fred, for doing that song. I told, asked Fred a few weeks ago, hey, would you do that song? And it didn't happen then, but here's the deal with the band, by the way, just a side note. If you ever wanna do a song, just put it out there. Just like let them know, hey, I'd like to do that song. I'd like to do that song. And maybe it won't happen the week you say, but they don't forget. They're beautiful, amazing people. They do a great job leading worship. So just keep, you know, you gotta put it out there in the atmosphere. You know, hey, I'd like to do that song. I've seen a lot of my favorite songs being done in the last nine months, and I'm really thankful for that. That's an audacious thing, that God would say, listen, this isn't gonna disqualify you. This isn't gonna stop you. This isn't even to harm you, but it's to be leveraged. In fact, I could maybe say it like this, that there's nothing good we'll ever do for God and for others that isn't gonna flow out of our brokenness. Because if it doesn't, then it's really our strength, not the strength of the Lord. And so he says, listen, this is gonna be leveraged. You're gonna lead, you're gonna serve from your brokenness. I love Crawford Lorette uh, says this in a book that he's got on leadership, but I think it applies to all of us. It says the world abhors weak leaders or weak people. So we're told to, to kind of put on our armor to kind of uh, present ourselves as confident and strong and, and not having any insecurities, which is total, can I say the word crap? I mean, to present ourselves as if we don't have these battling insecurities about how we might sound when we talk or maybe we have some imposter syndrome or maybe we're worried about how we look and we're kind of constantly battling with the way we present our image. And the world looks at weakness and abhors weakness, he says. Whoops, I lost my spot here because of my Bible. Wind blew my Bible here. What's he say? But in God's economy, in God's world, weakness means you're usable. Brokenness, grief, pain in the economy of God means you are usable. You have now become a person to which God can download his amazing, beautiful power to work in you and work through you. And it's an amazing thing. Jesus said to Paul, quoting the verse we just read, my power is made perfect in weakness. That's the first audacious claim, is that God intends for you to leverage and to serve and to lead out of your weakness. The second one, and this more dials into grief, is in Psalms 30. Psalms 30, and David says this in a whole passage where he talks about weeping and sorrow. Check out what David says in Psalms 30, verse 11. He says, you, God, have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Did you see that? You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. And you've loosed my sackcloth was back in those days when you lost somebody, when you were grieving, when you were suffering, when you were in pain. You got your normal clothes off and you got a sackcloth on and it was dirty and it was nasty, and, but you sat in it. It was to demonstrate to everybody that, that you were in mourning, that you were suffering. And David says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You, it, it, here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you came along and made me not sad. 
okay? So we need, to, we need to stop this kind of Christian kind of idea that we're not supposed to be sad. That's not what he says. He doesn't come and say, stop being sad, Catherine. It's never what he says. But he says, but you turned. You turned my mourning into dancing. This is not suppressing our grief. This is not a fake smile, but it's the work of God to shift unimaginable loss into beauty. That's an audacious claim. The Bible says to us in suffering and in grief, this can be shifted. And it's actually not something you're gonna do out of your own effort. There's not some plan. It's not like I can give you the plan and say, hey, if you do the plan, if you do the thing, if you walk through the steps, then all of a sudden this deep loss you feel, it's gonna be gone and you're gonna be happy. No, it says that God's gonna do something unimaginable in you And when you see what God does, when you see how God works, he's gonna take what you lost and he's gonna shift it into beauty. And so your mourning can actually become the source of your joy and your dancing. These are incredibly audacious claims. And so the question I have and the question that I've actually grappled with really in some powerful ways over the last uh, four years is how does God do that? In other words, what are the tangible things that are happening when I'm grieving, when I'm suffering, when I'm walking through pain? What are the, the actual tangible things that I can that I could grab onto to see them playing out inside of me so that I could see that as God's working in my weakness, as he's working in my struggle, as he's working in my grief, that I can start having joy grow in me because I see God at work and what's happened. God at work and what's been lost. God at work and the ways that I'm suffering. So what are those things that are happening? And so I wanna flip back actually to 2 Corinthians and there's a passage actually in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul is beginning to kind of lay out kind of a bigger theme, bigger idea that led to what we read in chapter 12. And I want to read through this and then I'm going to point out just a, a few things that I think are some tangible hooks we can grab onto to say, okay, as we're suffering or when we're hurting, these are some of the tangible things God is doing so that when I see that at work in me, then I might begin to feel this grief, this mourning shift. I might see God at work and it might bring a joy that I didn't expect. C.S. Lewis wrote a book and the book was Surprised by Joy. And I think that actually might be what happens to us. That as we're walking through the painful, as we're battling with anxiety and suffering, rejection, loss, as we're battling through those things, but we see God working intentionally in those things, we might be surprised at the joy that begins to overtake and grow in our heart. And I think that's what we would want is we wanted to see God at work. So this is what 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3 says. We're gonna read all the way to verse 11. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, any affliction, with the comfort with which we, we ourselves are comforted by God. 
For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. But that was to make us not, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So how does, how does God actually make those audacious claims happen in us? In other words, how does he work in our weakness so that it lever, it's leveraged to love and to serve others? And how does he actually work in our sorrow and in our grief so that it's turned to joy and dancing? And I think some of the keys are right here in this passage. I just wanna point out a few of them. The first is that we can see right in verse three, God invented mercy and is an, un, and is an unlimited source of comfort. He's the father of mercies. I think the idea is that, is that mercy, it, it flows out of him. He's the one who invented it. He came up with the idea. It wasn't us. In our human nature, that's not kind of our natural leaning. To offer mercy to the broken, our natural leaning is survival of the fittest. It's to survive. It's to take care of ourselves. It's to protect ourselves. And so the father looks in and from the father comes all mercy and the God of all comfort. He's an unlimited resource for mercy and comfort. That's an amazing thought. In other words, when he says, hey, listen, uh, we're gonna talk about some pain here. We're gonna talk about some pain we went through. And we're gonna talk about some pain you might go through. And the starting line of all of that is to say, we've got to get our focus off of empty sources. We've got to stop drawing from empty wells for comfort. There's a father of all mercy and a God of all comfort. And when we think through suffering and leaning into all that God wants to do in that, we have to find out who's the source. Where's the source of comfort come from? Who's the one that's got an unlimited bucket of mercy to pour in our direction? And his name is the Lord. And so he says, hey, let's turn our attention to this, this God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So how, how, does, he, how does he do what he's gonna do here? Well, what he's gonna do, as you see in verse four, is he comforts us, this Father of mercy, this God of all comfort, verse four, he comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Comfort, comfort, comfort. You get tongue twisted there for a second. Because <laughs> there's this loop, right? He comforts us. And from his comfort, we comfort you because he's comforted us. Paul is saying, so here's, here's, maybe we could say it this way. He relates to us so that we can relate to others. 
He relates to us so that we can relate to others. Look at the way four or five said this. He comforts us in our affliction. We can comfort you in your affliction with the comfort we got from God. Verse five, so we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings so that through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. In other words, we're relating with Christ in his suffering. We are knowing him, we're seeing him, we're experiencing him, we're suffering. And when we do, we encounter a suffering savior. We don't have a savior sitting up in heaven with no scars. We have a savior in heaven with scars, with a back ripped apart. Yes, he's got a resurrected body, but he's got scars on his back and scars on his arms and scars on his face. We always talk about the nails. Sometimes I just will imagine the way he was getting punched and pummeled in the face. He's got, he bears these scars. And so he actually has the comfort and empathy for us and our suffering, real comfort and empathy. I don't know if you've ever had this experience when you've gone through something hard. Maybe you're battling with some, um, some pressure. Maybe you've, you're suffering in some way. You've lost something. You've lost someone. Uh, maybe you've gone through a bad breakup, um, and you're, you really need to connect with someone. You need someone to, to be there, someone to hear. And sometimes you get to a point where, like, you'll kind of take anybody. You just got to kind of unload kind of what's on your heart. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience of if you've unloaded that with somebody who, someone who looks at you and they're like, man, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Like, you know, never gone through a breakup over here. You know, all the girls I liked, man, it, you know, I picked one and it worked out. And I used to have that happen to me all the time. Be like, oh, I just gotta unload this, like stuff I'm going through. People are be like, sorry, man, I've been married since I was 19. You know, <laughs> oh, thanks. That was helpful, you know? It's, it's an amazing thing that we have a God who relates. And so what we're doing is we're connecting with him and, and we're sharing with him. Paul, you will often talk about this, of, of knowing Christ by sharing in his sufferings. Does that mean we're suffering on the cross the way Jesus said? No, it just means that when we suffer, we're actually knowing Christ in that unique work he was doing when he suffered. Like there's a layer in the heart of God you will not know until you suffer. Because it's a massive aspect of who Jesus was and, and his journey on planet Earth. So why we have to, we have to shed this um, American Christian mentality that it's, we're supposed to be happy all the time. And if anything bad happens to you, it's because you're unspiritual. And if you're sad or groaning or hurting and battling, then something's wrong with you. Of course, the subtle thing is there is something wrong with you because there's something wrong with all of us because of the broken world we live in. But that can, that can be twisted. And so we begin to feel this kind of shame because we're hurting and shame that we can't just pull our bootstraps up and, and smile and clap and be like, woohoo. So what happens is, is we come into a church sometimes and we're bringing all this junk into church, but then we feel like here, we're supposed to pretend as if our faith in God is so unshaken that no matter what's happened, we just love God. We're so happy. How are you doing, Peter? I'm doing great. There's a lot, you, well, you should try this sometime. I pr come in some Sunday when you're not feeling great, let one person ask you how you're doing, and I double dog dare you to say, it sucks. I'm not doing good, it's been hard, it's terrible. And I'm actually kind of miserable. Watch the person squirm in church. 
and then stumble around and then go, ah, you know, Pastor Ulysses, <laughs> Pastor Ulysses, you pray for somebody. No, you pray for somebody. You lean in. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, we got this comfort. We were suffering, but we leaned into a God who had suffered. We leaned into a savior, the one we were following, the one who, that he had said, this is the path forward. He suffered and we followed the tracks of his blood. And we bled along with him. And so we knew him. And what we got from him was a comfort that we can give to you when you suffer. When you begin to experience that reality, I'm telling you guys, there's like a joy that will come out of your heart as you begin to experience that with people. When you sit with people and, and, and they unload something and you're able to do what Brene Brown talks about, which is to go and touch a place in your own heart where you've suffered. Maybe it's not the same kind of thing. Maybe your journey is completely different than the person you're talking to. Maybe you're married and they're single. Maybe they're struggling with something physical and you're struggling with something financial. But you're able to, as you, someone sits across from you and unloads something with you and you're able to go and you're able to touch a place where you're hurting, where you've gone to Christ. And as you begin to touch and feel that place as they're sharing, your eyes can well up with tears with them and for them. It's a beautiful thing. And it's the kind of thing where this surprising joy creeps in because you begin to see the work of God kind of coming in and through you as you're sharing. And so Paul says, man, we, how do we do this? Well, we go to the source of joy, the source of mercy, the source of comfort, and, and he relates to us and he provides comfort from his own personal pain. There's this passage, just to double down on this a bit, that the comfort that comes from Christ is not a comfort that comes from someone who hasn't suffered but look at what it says about Jesus. And this is a passage that we'll read more as we get closer to Good Friday. But check out this passage in Isaiah 53. This is talking about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by people. He was a man of sorrows. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So look at what even the prophet Isaiah said about the ministry of Jesus. He was as one as whom men hide their faces. In other words, they couldn't even, oh, hello. Got some uh, wind going on here. They couldn't even look at him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and he carried our sorrows. So the very work of Christ toward us flows from his own sorrow. His relating to us, his work in our lives flows from who he is and how he has suffered. And that's the comfort that Paul says that he has. I want you to see kind of the next thing that happens here. Look at verse six. If we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Here's the next big idea. And here's where beauty can begin to come in to these things we suffer, the things we mourn, the things we grieve. And here's some of the things I begin to see play out in my own experience when all that happened, when Monty passed away, is Paul saying, we're in it together. You're gonna go through stuff and we've got some comfort for you. 
and, and you're gonna see other people who are going through stuff and you're gonna have some comfort for them. And Jesus went through some stuff and he suffered and he's got comfort for you. So we're going back to the source of Jesus. We're getting comforted. We're passing that on to you. You're gonna share with us the suffering and you're gonna pass it on. We're in this together. And there's not a more beautiful thing I think you'll ever experience in your human uh, time on planet earth is when people grieve together and walk together. It's one of the most beautiful things that the gospel makes possible for us is it puts us in this family and then we walk together through stuff. That's why it would be such a shame to carry something in the community like this and hold it to yourself and not give other people who love Jesus an opportunity to walk with you, to not see them come through when you need them to, to provide things you can't even emotionally provide for yourselves at times. And I got to see, of course, sometimes you're forced to do this because something happens that's so traumatic and we all know, but I got to see a whole community of people walk together, both to provide time to hang out because we knew now we had a widow who was lonely, a 32-year-old widow who was suffering and hurting and had two little kids. And we had a whole community, virtually every uh, young woman in our church babysit for those kids. We provided a babysitter for two years, three nights a week just so that she could be there but not have to worry about where the kids were. And we just saw again and again and again, there is something beautiful when we do it together. We're in it together. And that's one of the, the joyful things that comes out of our suffering. But I want you to see, and here's the last thing in the band can come back up and I'll be done. Even though it's my last sermon, I was tempted to go an hour and a half. But, uh, but I'm gonna wrap this up here in a second. Those things are awesome and they're beautiful and God works in them and we see joy beginning to emerge out of them. But, but I want you to see right here at the end how Paul gets vulnerable and Paul actually lets us peek into how he was really feeling. Paul wasn't Superman and neither was Jesus. Jesus felt real emotions in his suffering. So did Paul, so does every human being on planet earth. So to try to, to whitewash that and to try to act like these aren't things we're supposed to be feeling just isn't true. Watch what Paul says in verse eight. I don't want you to be unaware, he says. I don't want you to be unaware of the affliction we experienced. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Can I just fix something or just maybe this is a thought you've had or you've heard it in church, but you know, God will give you more than you can handle. You know, he will. God will give you more than you can handle. In fact, it's part of his plan and purpose. I know that's heavy. He says in 1 Corinthians 10 that he won't tempt you beyond what you can handle. In other words, God isn't gonna put sin in front of you that he isn't gonna give you the strength to walk through. But when it comes to suffering and pain, God absolutely will give you more than you can handle. And it's not unspiritual to despair. It's not a lack of faith and it's not sin. Unless Paul was in sin when he despaired of life itself. Maybe there's somebody in the house that needs to know that right now. You are not a man or woman of small faith if you feel some despair right now. You're not unspiritual and you're not in sin. But, what God will do in the suffering is he will dislodge 
idols in us. He'll dislodge things that we battle with in our flesh and in sin. And primarily he'll dislodge our confidence in ourselves. Look at what Paul says. We felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves. Can I tell you that until you suffer, it's almost impossible not to rely on yourself. You can try, you can say you don't, you can say it doesn't matter, you can say like, no, I don't put my trust in my job. But until you lose your job, it's almost impossible not to put your confidence in it. You can say, no, 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 I, I, I don't put my confidence in my relationships. You know, I, I, I trust Jesus, I've got good friends and maybe you got family. I don't put any confidence in that. That's easy to say until you don't. And it's not there to put your hand on and to lean on. It's almost impossible not to put your confidence in your own strength until you have no strength. And so what suffering does is it dislodges our confidence in ourself and the idol of our heart, the things that we would lean on, the, the things that we would press on, we would say, we're gonna make it because I have Catherine. I'm gonna, I'll, know, I'll know I'll make it because I've got her. Or I know I'm gonna make it because, because I've got this friend. I, and I, I'll be honest, like there was a lot of times where like in that ministry, man, I was like, we're gonna go for some big things, God. And I know we can do it because I got this buddy. No, you don't. I know I can do it because I'm young and, and, I, and I've never been actually, you know, I, I've got a whole COVID time and I haven't got COVID. I'm great, I'm healthy, I never get sick. All of a sudden you can't move without excruciating pain. This is the human experience. The beauty of it is that God uses it to dislodge the, the kinds of things that would destroy us if we put our confidence in it. If you put your confidence in your health, it's gonna destroy you. If you put your ultimate confidence in a relationship, it's going to destroy you. If you put your ultimate confidence in being successful, it will destroy you. And in the kindness and beauty of God, he knows that the thing our broken human heart needs more than anything is to see what we could trust crushed. So that there's only one thing. And the only thing Paul has in front of him is that Jesus rose from the dead and he will raise us up. And he says, I came to the point where it wasn't my friends and it wasn't my job and it wasn't my health and there wasn't even a circumstance I could control. But I knew that that guy, he rose from the dead and I'm gonna put my hope there in him. Because if it goes down that way, he will raise me up. And so he says, that's where we put our confidence. Brothers and sisters, the joy that comes from putting your confidence in the sure place of Jesus, it is surprising. It's amazing. And it will shock everyone around you when you walk through some of the things that you will walk through between now and the end. And people will look in and go, how? Is that so beautiful? How is that pain so attractive? 
source are you going to, to have that? It's not a glib joy and it's not a self-help strategy. It's a confidence that's been battered by life to say there's only one sure place I put this. It's in the guy who rose from the dead, the guy who went to the cross and he is alive today. And if I go now or if I go later, he will raise me up. And that's where we wanna put our confidence this morning. So we're gonna respond in worship. Maybe you could stand with me. I don't know what any, I don't know what most of you, I know what some of you are going through because a lot of you have become really close to me and, but I don't know what a lot of you are going through and I don't know what some of the things are on your mind right now as the big rocks where maybe what's happened is that you've allowed bitterness and a hard heart to become your story. And this morning, Jesus would invite you to know him in his sufferings. And he would dislodge some of the things you thought you had to have to be happy. And you would re relocate your confidence in Jesus. As we respond in worship, let's, let's ask the spirit to, to show us where we need to do that and to show us how to do it. In Jesus' name, let's worship. <clears throat>